Good morning, everybody. How are you all doing? All right. Well, this morning is the last in the series um, in Ephesians 4, where we're talking about the five gifts mentioned there. Who can remember what those gifts are? What's the first one that we've talked about so far? Apostle. After apostle, we talked about, and then, and this week, and also this week. All right, so the idea is to try and get through two in the course of one week, um, and remembering that our text is taken out of Ephesians chapter 4, um, let's read Ephesians chapter 4 um, as it comes up on the screens. Read it with me, please. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in a bond of peace, to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And so it seems as if the Lord has given gifts to accomplish three things. And so if you were to take the gifts out, how would those things be accomplished? How would there be equipping of the saints? How would there then be works of ministry? And how would there then be edifying of the body? And, and if we went back a little bit, um, you notice that um, the text says, according to the measure of Christ's gift, he himself gave. According to the measure of Christ's gift, he himself gave. So sense for a moment the magnitude of the gift that Christ has. More than just gifts, think for a moment on his love. Think for a moment on his goodness, his grace. Out of the fullness of Christ, out of the abundance of Christ, out of everything he is, he gives gifts. And so that tells me something, that I've got to appreciate those gifts in the context of the giver. The giver who is full of love, the giver who is life, the giver who is truth. Out of those gifts, out of those, out of those things, the gifts come. So we experience his gifts in love, we experience his gifts in grace, we experience his gifts in truth, and we recognize that through his gifts, as we work those gifts in ourselves and through us, his love, his life, his light, his truth is given. And so because Christ gives us something, that means that if you are a Christian today, if you are in Christ, you have some kind of gift, some measure of the gift of Christ. And I know some of you have taken the questionnaire, and I know some of you haven't taken the questionnaire, but it doesn't matter whether you have or haven't, you still have the gift. The question is, is there any way that you could look at yourself in order to be able to say that this is the gift I have. Is there a mirror like that? Is there a mirror that I could hold up to you, Adam, and you could look in that mirror and say that because I'm looking in this mirror, I can see perfectly the gift that I have? Let's think for a moment about mirrors. 
Um, I'm going to ask you just to do a little inventory of your own mirrors in your life. Think through your bathrooms, your bedrooms, your sitting areas, your cars, wherever else you have mirrors, and just do a quick sum of how many mirrors there are in your life. I'm going to give you 20 seconds, then I'm going to ask for a quick show of hands. I've already counted mine. I know how many I have. So think, your bathroom, how many mirrors are there? Your bedroom, how many mirrors are there? Other areas of the house, how many mirrors do you have? In your car, most people are going to have an overhead mirror, wing mirrors, three. You have four cars, or five cars, or seven cars, or two cars. Just do the sums. We just about there? Okay. Who has zero mirrors? <laughs> Who has more than three? Keep your hand up if you have more than five. Keep your hand up if you have more than 10. Keep your hand up if you have more than 15. Keep your hand up if you have more than 20. All right. So as humans, we get what mirrors do. When we look in a mirror, we see a reflection of ourselves. In cars, when we look in a mirror, we see a reflection of something else. But humans have been using mirrors forever. Before there were mirrors that have reflective materials painted on the back of them, how were humans doing it? When do you think we first saw a reflection of ourselves? In water. And so someone probably worked out that if, if I can only see a reflection of myself when I'm looking in the stream when it's still, but I want to look at myself a lot more than that, how would you do that? Oh, maybe I can put the water in some kind of vessel and I can carry it around with me, so now I can see my reflection in, in, in that. What else have we done over history? People have polished things. People have polished rocks. People have polished uh, metals, brass and silver and copper to see our, see our reflections. All through history, we've looked at ourselves. And we're in a generation where we can look at ourselves in other ways. Because we, if, we, if we don't like what the mirror says, through history, people have had portraits painted of themselves, correct? And better than portraits, we can take photographs. And better, or some may say worse than photographs, we can take selfies. And if you don't have a phone, who, who doesn't have a cell phone here? So everybody's capable of, if you want to look at yourself and you don't have a mirror, using the reverse camera and looking at yourself that way. What is this telling us? That we like to look at ourselves a lot. <laughs> we like to look at ourselves a lot. And the problem with mirrors is that they're showing us our spiritual selves? No. Our physical self. So we're looking a whole lot at how we look physically. What if there was a spiritual mirror that we could look at ourselves in? How would that then be? I'm not talking about the kind of mirror that was in Snow White or any other literature, and there are mirrors all in literature, or the kind of mirror that Alice, did Alice step through something in the book, through the looking glass and everything was reversed, all those kind of things. Instead, I'm talking about a spiritual mirror that we could hold up and we could look at ourselves, and we could see instead of our physical likeness, our spiritual likeness. And the good thing is that we have one. We're going to have the next text up in the book of 2 Corinthians 3.18. This text is talking about, it begins by speaking about Moses. And there was a time when Moses ascended the mountain of God and spent so long in the presence of God that when he came back down, his face was, was radiating so much that, that he, he, he put a veil over his head. 
because people couldn't stand to look at him because so much was the reflection of the glory of God. He'd been in the presence of God. He'd got so much of the glory of God that this was still on him. So when he comes back down a mountain, whatever that looks like, he's glowing. So he covers his head with a veil because they couldn't stand to look at the glory of God, not the direct glory of God, but the glory of God reflecting out of Moses because he'd been in the presence of God. But in the New Testament, it says that that veil in Christ has been taken away. And that we who are in Christ can stand to look at the glory of God. And so it says that we all, with unveiled faces, that's the three dots, are beholding, as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord. Think on that for a moment. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we are able to look at the glory of God as if we were looking in a mirror. Way better than the one or two or five or 10 or 20 that we have that show us us. A spiritual mirror that shows us the Lord by the power of the Spirit at work in, in Christ. And this mirror is almost like a magic mirror, it seems, because it says that when we're beholding the glory of God, something's going on. What does it say is going on? There's a transformation going on. So we're looking by the power of the Spirit at the glory of God. And as we look into this, as we're looking in the mirror, we're being transformed into the image of Christ. Another great mirror. Every Christian has that. We're not people who are afraid to look at the glory of God. We should be people who are desperate to wanting to look at the glory of God. And so when we, when we come back to that text in Ephesians, Christ's given gifts to us out of his abundance, out of his fullness, out of his glory, out of his grace, out of his love, we look at him. We might get a sense of how we look. We look at Jesus this morning. We might get a sense of how he has made us look. And we might get a sense of what gift he's given you. Because I'm trying to sum up this morning, because we've spoken about the gift of apostles and prophets, evangelists, and we're going to talk about the last two this morning, but, but what is his gift to you been? And I'm talking about more than a questionnaire. Throughout your life, have you been hearing the whisper and the word of the Lord? Have you had a sense? Have there maybe been prophetic words spoken over you through your life, telling you that I have a sense that this is who the Lord's called you to be? Because the importance of this is that Unless we all walk in that sense of calling, work out what it is and do it, it just doesn't work in church. It doesn't work because no one person has all the gifts. The only one who had all the gifts was Jesus. So let's look firstly at Jesus as shepherd. He made this easy for us. There's a description of a shepherd, and he says he's the good shepherd. And so what we're looking at here is the best shepherd there has ever been. So listen to these words and listen to the things I speak about here as we go through this. John chapter 10, the shepherd of the sheep. Let's stop and think about, about sheep for a moment. Sheep attributes. What are sheep like? Dumb. Anything else? Skittish, they follow anything. <laughs> they get eaten by 
wolves if they're not protected. They need protecting. The Bible says we all, like sheep, have strayed, gone astray, turned and gone our own way. So there's a tendency of sheep that isn't a pleasant tendency. So it means that the one called to be a shepherd has to recognize, firstly, that you're dealing with sheep. So if you're a shepherd, there's no point moaning about the fact that the sheep are skittish, go astray, follow anything, have a tendency to get devoured if they're not protected. This is sheep. The shepherd of the sheep, the first thing it says is the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep. There is a sense here of ownership, of recognition by the sheep of the voice of the shepherd. He knows them by name. The personal touch to this. This isn't generic, this is really specific. Is that something you have? Do you care about people that intimately that you want to know their names? You want to take some sense of responsibility for them? He leads them. He's not behind them. He's not taking a, 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 a sense of where the sheep are going and saying, that's where we're going. Let me get behind them. Let me do some polls. Let me work out where the sheep want to go according to social media or whatever it says else about the sheep. This is what the sheep want, so this is where we're going to go. Instead, it says the shepherd does what? He's where or she's where? In front, leading. When he brings out his own sheep, he goes before him, and the sheep don't follow him. It doesn't say that. If you're a shepherd and no one follows you, you're not a shepherd. If you, walk, if you go somewhere, if you're leading in anything and no one follows you, Because they know his voice. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And look at this next one. The good shepherd lives in a way that is sacrificial. He gives his life for the sheep. We go to the next text. Jesus then spins it around and says, this is not who I am. What do you think the word hireling means? What does that sound like to you? Okay. Sound like someone who's in for the long haul? Sound like someone who's just there for the cash? Someone who's just there maybe for the glory? Sound like someone who's going to flee at the first opportunity? I think it sounds like that. A hireling is not the shepherd, doesn't own the sheep, no sense of responsibility or ownership, sees the wolf coming and does what? Gives his life for the sheep, protects the sheep? No, is first to run. Leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because this is who he is. He doesn't care about the sheep. Jesus says again, I am the good shepherd. I have knowledge of my sheep. They know me. And look at this last point here in 16. Jesus has responsibility for a particular group, but that's not all he cares about. He can see beyond those who are in his immediate vicinity. That's shepherding according to Jesus. A sense of that the person you're with isn't everybody. You can spend time with them, but there's more. There are others, and he's working with a sense of unity to bring about one flock, one fold, under one shepherd. I don't know a better definition of what it means to be a shepherd or a pastor, if you want to use that term, than that. 
Does any of that resonate with any of you? Because remember, what we're doing here is we're looking in a mirror. As we look in the mirror that is Christ, by the power of the Spirit, I'm hoping that He, by the Spirit, is holding up the mirror that we cannot see and showing you how He has given something of Himself to you. So if it resonates in you, what you're seeing in yourself is some of Him. So it's great, because I saw some heads nodding. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. There's no need for that. Because the voice of the Holy Spirit, the mirror that is the Holy Spirit, is more important than anything else this morning. Let's talk now about Jesus as teacher. In Matthew 13, verse 52, Jesus says these words. And and I want you to get a sense of what a scribe means. If you heard anyone familiar with the term scribe, who knows what that means? A, 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 couple, a couple of you. A, a scribe was someone who was effectively a copyist, someone who would copy something exactly. And they weren't using photocopying machines, and they weren't using cameras or scanners. They were doing this manually. So a, squir- a scribe was responsible in those days for, for taking the scriptures and copying them exactly so that, so, that, so that their version represented exactly the version that they'd looked at. And so that if you got something from a scribe, I suppose their, 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 their reputation was going to be based on how well they were known to copy. So if you had a scribe who had like 63% accuracy, they're not going to get employed a lot, are they? Um, and, and you're not going, to, not going to call him or her back. You need the man or woman who's going to get it down 100%. So it's interesting that Jesus uses the word a scribe when he's talking about teaching. And I have a sense that when Jesus uses the word scribe to talk about teaching, he's saying it's the same thing. Teaching is not about being 63% accurate. It's about seeing something and copying it exactly as you see it and saying it exactly as you see it, but you're known because of the accuracy of your representation. How well does the thing that you present mirror the thing that you saw? So he says, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and old. Let me give you the context of that, Matthew 13. Jesus has just begun to speak to them in parables. He's spoken to them about the parable of the sower. A man sows, birds snatch some of it, some of it grows up quickly, and then he, all of the rest of that, then he tells them what this means. He gives them another parable, and every one of these things is prefaced by the term, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like, it's like leaven, it's like a mustard seed, it's like, it's like, it's like a pearl that someone finds in a field and goes and sells everything he has to buy the field. It's like treasure. It's like a dragnet. Jesus is saying to them, let me, who has seen the kingdom, who knows the kingdom, who is from the kingdom, tell you who has no idea what it's like, what it's like. Teaching. Teaching simply about telling people about something that you've seen, that you have a way to articulate to them. Every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom is like a householder who brings out of his treasure new things and old. What Jesus is doing in parables is he's, he says, I've worked out a new way to communicate. In every generation, the church has need of people who can work out a new way to communicate. Jesus was speaking about parables that had everything to do with, 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 with farming. How many farmers here? Okay. <laughs> Not a whole lot. 
in another rural community, there may be 100% farmers here. And so when you speak to them about sowing parables and mustard seeds that grow up to become trees and leaven, how many people know what leaven and yeast does? Okay, 10% of us. So we have need of, in this generation, teachers like scribes who can see the kingdom and can communicate it in language that people get. And that isn't necessarily the language of 300 years ago. It's not necessarily the language of 1,000 years ago or 2,000 years ago or even 10 years ago. How do we communicate today? How do we receive our information? Do we receive information most of the time during the week by everybody sitting on their backsides listening to one person talking? Why do we do it in church then? Phones, TV, media, music. God's not stuck in a box. The teacher is one who can see the kingdom of heaven and accurately, faithfully describe it to those who can't. However you do that. It may be through presentational mediums like this, and it may not be. Is any of this resonating with you? But Jesus also says, because he speaks about, he, uh, he says, woe to some people a lot on this point. And he says, woe to you Pharisees, because he says that you're not this. You're not people who've seen the kingdom and are showing people how to get there. Instead, he calls them blind guides. You're leading them somewhere, and you don't even know where you're going yourself. He says that you load them with burdens, you make their lives hard, you tell them you've got to do this and this and this and this, and you don't lift any finger to even help them carry the burden. That isn't teaching. Teaching's not about saddling you with, with 50 things to do that you can't do one of so that you feel condemned and, 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 and that it's not working. It's instead trying to help you see what's real and what's possible and what is, what is achievable. What we know, what we describe, what we are able to describe. And so at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, so this is another time in Jesus' ministry, and you think how many chapters in Matthew and wherever else, I think Luke, the Sermon on the Mount takes up. Jesus has been saying some things. And these things are not normal things, are they? Jesus has been saying, it was said to you of old, an eye for an eye, but I say to you. And they're probably like, huh? He's been saying, do you think... That murder is bad, let me tell you, anger is as bad. Huh? So I figured that the Sermon on the Mount was a whole lot of, huh? Did he just say that? Did he just say that? And hold on a sec, the law doesn't fade away, the law's gonna be there forever, and I didn't come to replace the law, and all those other things. When someone asks you for your coat, give them. They ask you to go one mile, go. Do not resist the person who wants to steal everything and take everything you have tough and at the end of this they're not sitting there thinking man that was a bad day half a day two hours with that man and he didn't even feed us they're sitting there moved so much by the power with which he has spoken that they say when Jesus has ended his sayings the people were astonished at his teaching for he taught as one having authority they knew that whether they liked it or didn't like it, what he said, there was with it authority. 
And there is no authority by any man's words. The authority comes from where? God. What Jesus said lined up 100% with his Father, where his, what the Spirit is saying. So teaching isn't about just saying things. It's not about representing things that you haven't seen. It's not even about describing things in the natural because there's lots of people that can do that. Christian teaching is about describing the kingdom in a way that is authoritative. And it's authoritative because you are in the same place and in the same way and speaking with the very words that the Spirit of God gives you. We are in a generation where we pay so much more attention to how we structure talks and conversations and things than what we're actually saying. You can dress it up in a way that makes it seem good. It can be rhetorical and it can be logical and it can add up and I could give you 10 points beginning with C or whatever, but it doesn't make it any more right. I can tell you a clever story here or a joke to make you like me more, but that doesn't make what I'm saying any more true. Jesus wasn't trying to win friends. Jesus was trying to communicate what the Spirit of God was saying to him. And we go to the next text. It says, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. He's saying that as teachers, the flesh stuff is pointless. Make it all about spirit. Make it all about spirit. There may be a shaping. You may end up giving six things that end begin with C if the Spirit leads you that way. But don't start and say, thing, I'm gonna, I need three, six things to begin with C and try and squeeze it in there. You may or may not know, Psalm 119, the longest psalm in the Bible, um, is in written in sections. You've got to look at the Hebrew to see this. Every section of Psalm 119 begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Every sentence within each section begins with the same letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So Psalm 119, the first section, is all with Aleph, first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and every sentence begins with the same letter. Then it goes to the next thing, and the next thing, all the way through. That is extreme literary shaping, but I bet, I bet it was God that said, this is how I want you to do it. I don't think it was the other way around that he said, oh, you know what, I want to do something really clever here. I see if I can work all my way through the Hebrew alphabet and, and just going to put any junk in there, but I achieved the end. No. Get the spirit above the shaping. Shaping, not there. Spirit down there. Spin it the other way. For the words I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. Teachers, does any of this resonate with you? You can see the kingdom. You can perceive the things of the kingdom. And more than seeing it, you sense that God has given you an ability to describe them to people accurately, to communicate. But something about you, something in you, and this is again, remember this is the mirror of the Holy Spirit looking at Jesus, how he taught. Jesus, how he described himself as shepherd holding up that mirror to you, and I hope that some of you have seen in yourself an aspect of his gifting given to you to be the shepherd, the teacher, and in the previous weeks, the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, some mix of those things. Our God, who was all of them, perfectly, out of his fullness, out of his grace, out of his abundance has given something to every one of us. Why? So we can sit and do nothing with it? Mighty choir for a minute. 
Walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called. So it's time to land this thing. So if you've seen a measure of gifting in you this morning or on other mornings, what are you going to do with it? Jesus tells a parable of um, the talents that I'm sure you're all familiar with. He gives gifts to some and then he goes away. I think it's interesting that he goes away. He doesn't stand over their shoulder to try and tell them, this is what you must do with what I've given you. He goes away. And he gives some a lot. And there'll be some here who've been given a lot. You can do a lot of things. You may, be, you may have scored, if you took the test, exactly the same on all five things. You may be as much po- apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher. But the scripture then says, oops, to those who much is given, oh dear. Then he gives to some others a little less because he thinks maybe he or she can only handle two talents or whatever. So I can't give them everything. I give them a little less, but still they get something. And then he gives to one man one thing. He thinks, can't do much. I know him. And then he goes away. And so when Jesus looks each of us in the face, as he will, and says to you, what did you do? with what I gave you of myself. Our response will be, think ahead to that day. Think ahead to that day. As you begin to sense, God, I sense that this is, you've given me something. The principles of the parable then hold true. He's a, he's a God who gives and has an expectation of fruit. Jesus astonishes his disciples when he comes to a tree that's not bearing any fruit and he curses the tree. It seems that fruit wasn't even meant to be bearing fruit at that time of year. I don't know what's going on there, but Jesus is so mad that he curses the tree. Jesus is saying, I expect fruit. This is a principle of sowing. You sow, something comes back. You put a seed in the ground. If it doesn't turn into something, you're like, dud seed. Back to Home Depot, get more seeds, start again. But Jesus is like this, isn't he? He's saying, I've given you something. I've given you something. Some of you have given a lot. Some of you have given a little less. I've given you what you can stand. If I've given you a lot, I'm expecting a lot. If I've given you a little less, I'm expecting a little less. If I've given you a minuscule bit, I'm still expecting something. And when I come back, and when I look you in the eye, and I say, what did you do with it? We should be the ones who can say, Lord, you gave me four talents, and I got eight. I took risk. I did things that I didn't think I should maybe could do. I risked almost losing at one point. Four points, five points. But hey, it worked out. Uh, and to the guys who got two, he's like, well, I, got, I got four. Well done. And then the other guy comes up. He's got one thing. This is the nobody person, person who did nothing. Jesus gave him something of himself, and he sat on his backside. Worse than that. He hid it. What did he do? Nothing. And he comes up with an excuse. He says, I didn't do anything with it because... I thought that if I did something wrong, you'd be mad at me. He didn't say that, but he may as well have said that. I didn't do anything with it because I was afraid I'd lose it. I didn't do anything with it because I was afraid that when you came back and I had nothing to give you, you'd be like mad. So I did nothing. And Jesus says, you kidding me. You didn't even put it in a bank so it could earn interest. You did nothing. The most basic thing you can do with something, someone gives you something is something. Something. That's what Jesus is saying. You should have done something. You thought I was an austere and a hard man coming back to exact something from you to say, what did you do with it? You would have at least said, this wasn't much, but nothing? 
nothing. This is the only way we can grow to maturity. Calling, I'm going to define this way, is just recognizing what's been given, why it has been given, and stewarding it well. Recognizing what has been given, why it has been given, and stewarding it well. There's no magic to it. Not necessarily a voice that calls out from a burning bush. Moses, Moses. <gasps> Whatever that was. Or whatever it sounded like for God to tell Noah, build an ark in which you're going to save your family and humanity. Calling. Or like the Apostle Paul, who, who for years, it seems, is persecuting the church, holding the coats of those who are there at the time that Stephen is stoned. And when he's eventually stopped on the Damascus Road, he's actively trying to still persecute the church. He's on his way to do something against the church, and God stops him in his tracks. Do you want God to do that to you? If his calling and gifting upon you is so immense, don't push it to the point that you've got to be blinded on the road going somewhere. Because in some trans translations, it uses this term, it's hard for you to kick against the goads, Paul. A goad seems to be a sharp prodding instrument used to get cattle and things to go where you want. It seems as if... The Lord's saying, Jesus is saying to Paul, it's hard for you to keep resisting me. I've been jabbing you, poking you, telling you to do this, to go there, to do that. And your calling is so important, Paul, that I'm going to stop you in your tracks because if you don't do it, we don't have much of the New Testament. It's that big. The gospel might not come to us. It's that big. Look at that. He stops him. He blinds him. Jonah, anyone want to end up in the bottom of a ship? Down, 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 down. Jonah's descent, read it. Everywhere he went, running away from the presence of God, he's going deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into the hold of the ship, from the hold of the ship into the belly of the whale. He's the only one on the ship who has the answer. He's the only one on the ship who knows God. Is that us? Are you the only person in your workplace, in your community, in this, in your circle who knows the Lord? Are we bold enough to say, God, Give us a push, shove us, prod us, so that we sense, having sensed the gift you've given us, walk in it, not being condemned to dwell in immaturity. Immaturity is no excuse. We all start as babies. But if you looked at your friend or your child in 50 years and they were still doing the same things they did when they were born, you couldn't. You'd say, they haven't matured. We're called to mature. We're called to grow. And Ephesians 4, 13 to 16 says, until we all, how many of us is that? Everybody, reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. How? Read those lines with me. As each part does its work. Switch this. As I do my work. Can we say that? As I do my work. And just one more time. As I do my work. What I want to leave here is with the words of Hebrews 12, 1 to 2, which comes after what is often called the great chapter of faith, Hebrews 11. 
In your calling to work out who you are and what God's called you to be, you may want to go read stories of men and women in the Bible who've been apostles and prophets and teachers and pastors or shepherds and evangelists. Learn from them, but don't stop in the scriptures. Look through the whole of history. Because God has called men and women to be these things through the whole of the history outside of the Bible as well. Through the Old Testament, through the New Testament. Moses, a prophet. The apostle, Paul. Stephen. Philip. You want to know about you know, the evangelists? We talked about it last week. The evangelist Philip goes up alongside the, the chariot with the Ethiopian eunuch, and, and, and then he just disappears. That's, that's, you might think, oh, maybe that is what evangelism. I'm going to go and talk to these people, and maybe God's just going to, I'm going to go somewhere else and go do it again. I'm going to go somewhere else and go do it again. You'll learn something, and look at history. Fill your bookshelves with people who've done these things for the kingdom. If you want to be at anything, learn from history. Learn from the lessons of those that have been before us. But this, therefore, we also, since we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses to the life of faith, let us, this is let us individually, but let us in community also lay aside every weight. Grow into maturity means laying aside things that hold us back, that hinder us, that weigh us down. We don't run races with our pockets filled with lead, do we? unless we're training to strengthen ourselves. And the sin, which so easily ensnares. So another hindrance to maturity is sin. And let us run with endurance. Not for a minute. Not for a couple weeks, but for years. This is why at this moment I'm not going to take a show of hands. Who's going to do what here? Because it's not about that. It's not about whether you put your hand up and said, I will, because I was guilted into it. It's instead about the long haul with endurance the race set before us each of you has a unique race will you run it for the good of this community for the good of the broader Christian community that we are part of looking unto Jesus beholding the glory of God without veils on our faces and in that mirror that is the Holy Spirit's work, being transformed from glory to glory, looking more and more like Jesus as we look longer and deeper into the mirror that he is. I pray that we, together with all the saints, in this community, in other communities, who live before us, who live after us, will attain to the fullest measure of our calling in Christ Jesus. And if you agree with me, say,